Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. All right, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Friday afternoon as we head into the weekend and uh, get set to say farewell to April. Good riddance, maybe even. 974-8255 is the number here, 403-974-TALK. I want to come back to the conversation around Bill C-10, which ostensibly is about modernizing the Broadcast Act. You can argue that, you know, given how the landscape has changed, and the lines have blurred in terms of what a broadcaster is, maybe we need new rules or different rules or some of both or, or something else completely. But this conversation has taken a weird turn. And so somehow we went from how should the Broadcast Act operate to does this legislation pose a threat to free speech in Canada? How did we get here? And why is the government so intent on trying to regulate the Internet to this extent? More specifically, regulating user-generated content. I don't think anybody in this conversation has argued that a video that somebody uploads to TikTok or YouTube is broadcasting. So why on earth would we want the CRTC and by extension the government uh, to be concerned about that or to some extent be controlling that? So yes, I mean, some of it does sound kind of ominous. I don't think that's that's paranoia at this point. Well, someone who's been following all of this very closely, and look, this is a big piece of legislation to wade through, so it is complex in a lot of ways. But uh, joining us to talk more about it is Dr. Michael Geist. He's a professor of law and Canada Research Chair in e-commerce and internet law uh, at the uh, University of Ottawa. MichaelGeist.ca is his website, where he's been writing a lot about this. Dr. Geist, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Now, you've been following this for a while, and, you know, Bill 10 has been on the table and been discussed and debated for for a long time now. But this all took a weird turn last week in this exemption that was removed from the legislation, which appears to have been a very significant change. What's your sense of why this occurred, first of all? That's a great question. And, And, I mean, you're right. This legislation started with... The government saying they wanted to ensure that the big streaming services like Netflix and Disney contributed uh, to help support Canadian content. I think there's a reasonable argument they were already doing that, but that that wasn't particularly controversial for many. But by removing one of the core exceptions that would exclude user-generated content from the ambit of the Act, they raised, I think, significant issues in terms of freedom of expression. you know, they've argued or they've made the case that this is somehow about copyright or about ensuring that musicians are adequately compensated. I don't think it's a convincing argument. And what I think is without debate right now is that they have now waded into this notion of regulating the content of user-generated content. They've not really been clear. I mean, you had a post uh, yesterday uh, exploring what officials in the Heritage Department are saying, what the Heritage Minister himself, Stephen Gabo, is saying. It's very confused. There are mixed messages. 
But, I mean, the, the concerning takeaway here seems to be that the minister's not being completely forthright. I think that's 100% accurate. I mean, this minister, if we're, if we're honest about it and take a closer look at what the government has been saying, really almost from the beginning, I think it's sent not just mixed messages, I think it has provided inaccuracies about this legislation, what it means, the scope of this legislation, uh, really almost from day one. They made claims about uh, whether or not there were economic thresholds in the bill when there weren't. They suggested it was just like Europe when it wasn't. And now we come up with this coverage of user-generated content with attempts to somehow argue that, well, no, we're not really doing this, even though this was an exception that they themselves put in the legislation to begin with and now have decided they wanted to remove. We've heard some different arguments. I mean, on the one hand, it's been suggested maybe there's some copyright issues here in terms of uh, music that people are using in their videos, or maybe it's about harmful or hateful content. You know, and, and it, it just seems all over the map. Does any of this hold water to you? Uh, to be honest, it doesn't. You know, I mean, if you, t- if you look at, the, at the, the piece of legislation or the, the specific provision, what it clearly did uh, was to ensure that user-generated content would not be treated like a program such as, a, as this program or a program that you would have on a television channel. And by removing it, that's what they're effectively doing. They're saying that the TikTok videos, the Instagram posts, uh, YouTube videos, all of those things are programs like any other piece of broadcast. Um, and I think that's, you know, I, I don't think that's consistent with how Canadians see it. I think it's a mistake, and I think for all the, the claims that the minister has tried to make, to say, well, no, there's, there's really not much ado here, it is precisely, this interpretation that I've just given you, is precisely what heritage officials told the, depart, told the committee when they were debating this particular decision. They, they were asked, what are the implications, and they said expressly, if you do this, you will ensure that all of that kind of content, all that user-generated content, is regulable by the CRTC as a program. And that becomes a question that this would give the CRTC the power to regulate all of this, which is a lot. But what are they going to do with that power? How are they going to regulate this? There's a lot of uncertainty there. Yeah, there's an enormous amount of uncertainty. And I mean, I think to be fair, we don't know precisely what they are going to do. We know what they can do. We know that they can begin to take closer look at people's feeds or at the feeds that and the algorithms that are used by these various services, and they can say, you know what, we don't think there's enough Canadian content on those feeds, and so we're going to require a YouTube or a TikTok to begin to alter the kinds of feeds that, uh, or the content on the feeds of their individual users to, in a sense, increase the so-called discoverability of the amount of Canadian content that appears on people's feeds. And by extension, of course, they may be limiting uh, your voice, my voice. It may not be as distributed as widely because... You've got a regulator making some of these kinds of determinations. So you, you think it's fair to say that there are some definite free speech implications in all of this? Well, you know, Rob, I, there's no doubt there's free speech implications. And I think that it, it's important for people, especially those that might not actively be on TikTok, to recognize that for an entire generation, this is simply how they communicate. You know, yeah. it's through TikToks or Snapchats or Instagram posts. For them, that's the same form of communication that for my generation, it might have been blog posts or emails. And for a previous generation to that, it might have been faxes or letters. We would never dream of saying that the CRTC ought to be able to regulate a letter or a fax or an email. And yet that's precisely what the government is doing with the new generation's form of expression.
And to what end, right? I mean, and it gets back to that question of what we're trying to accomplish here. I mean, even I think originally the goals of, of C10 were somewhat nebulous. I mean, you know, the idea of a level playing field was, was kind of the impetus. But I, I think we've lost sight of this here. This, this seems to get us further away from any reasonable objective that was initially laid out. So even if this is possible, to what end? Yeah, no, I think you're right. You know, listen, I, I, I think that the, the government has really moved towards this kind of battling the web giants as kind of its, its, its core policy objective. And it's an odd one, given that millions of Canadians actively use and quite clearly like these services. I think there are genuine concerns uh, and legitimate concerns about some of these things associated with the services. But oddly, the government isn't paying attention to those. So... I think there's a lot of Canadians, for example, concerned about the data that's collected by these services and how that gets used. But yet, on that front, the privacy legislation they introduced right around the same time as Bill C-10 has basically died on the vine. They haven't done anything with it. Instead, they're seemingly determined to become far more invasive when it comes to the Internet. We know that there may be additional legislation coming that could involve website blocking, that could involve mandated takedowns. You know, I described recently... The, that this government's really become, I think, the most anti-Internet government in Canadian history. And I believe that that's really the inescapable conclusion when you see the kind of hostility they have to freedom of expression and the active use of many of these kinds of services. Here's the thing. I mean, looking just at TikTok, for example, um, you know, the number of videos that get uploaded every day, the videos that get watched every day, I mean, the numbers are mind-boggling. So I, I don't even know how we would begin to regulate this, if even if we're inclined to. Do you fear that one of the repercussions might be that these services might not be available to Canadians at some point? Yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned that. And, and you know, listen, I think if you're, a, if you're a huge service, if you're a Facebook with millions of Canadians, I don't, I'd be surprised if they walked away from the Canadian market because of this, although I think they and many of the other services will point out that some of the kinds of things the CRTC could do will be exceptionally difficult to implement, will ultimately raise costs or mean that certain aspects of those services are eliminated. But I also think we should recognize that for many other services that may be thinking about entering the Canadian market to kind of create new competition, new opportunities, many may look at the Canadian market and say, listen, this is, this, we're going to give it a pass. Similar kinds of countries simply aren't moving in this kind of regulatory approach, and we're just going to avoid it altogether. This is a hassle we simply don't need. We'll see what comes of all of this. Certainly the government's, I think, under a lot of pressure over these changes. Uh, much more is mentioned. MichaelGeist.ca, some deep analysis of all, all of this. Appreciate your insight here. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. All the best. There you go. That's uh, Michael Geist. MichaelGeist.ca is his website, G-E-I-S-T. And, uh, yeah, he's got a couple of long writes uh, this week on, on some of these changes. And, and also, more to the point, the uh, contradictions and what the minister is saying, and what his own department is saying. So there's clearly an intent here to regulate user-generated content. They didn't accidentally do this. It's very deliberate. But why, and how, and what does it all mean? So yes, this, this, this deserves very close scrutiny. And so we've talked about it a few times this week, and I'm sure we'll talk more about it. Because I think people are right to be alarmed by this. You know, even if this isn't about censoring content per se, this is still a, a, an enormous overreach. And there's no real argument for this that I have seen. So that's what's so concerning. This massive overreach by government, 
for no apparent good reason. So, I, yeah, I really don't know what to make of this. But like I say, it's something to keep an eye on. But depending on what it is we're going to start asking of these companies, that, look, if Canadians go on TikTok, you need to make sure that they are seeing videos from other Canadians, first and foremost. And a certain percentage should be uh, in French. And they should be focused on, on certain topics and certain topics should get uh, prominence. And, you know, we could come back at any point and, and ask to review some of this. So you got to keep a record of all of this. And at some point on these companies say, well, the hell with you then. We don't want any part of this. So sorry, Canada, we're out of here. I mean, you know, there's some other issues with, with TikTok and, uh, you know, the connections back to China, but that's a separate issue. Point is here, this isn't about uh, security in any sense. I don't know what this is about. Now, I will say this as someone who comes on every single day or weekdays anyway and speaks to you as a broadcaster on a radio station that's licensed by and regulated by the CRTC. I don't ever notice the CRTC. Nobody from the CRTC has ever contacted me. They have never brought anything up with me. I've never been told to say this or don't say that. So, I mean, I guess that's something. But I don't, um, I don't know why the CRTC needs to stick his nose in here in the first place. It's nose in here. Well, maybe to no one's great surprise, the uh, press conference announced for today from Defense Minister Harjit Sejan was not to resign, was not to apologize, was not really to take accountability for this whole situation at all. And everything that's come to light about the situation around uh, former Chief of Defense Staff Jonathan, General Jonathan Vance, and, and more so too, I mean, the, you know, the bigger issue of you know, the culture that exists within the Canadian Forces and the Department of National Defense when it comes to sexual misconduct, sexual assault, harassment. What we got today was an announcement of yet another investigation into all of this, despite the fact that we had this exact thing in 2015, which was led by a former Supreme Court justice. So what did we get today? An announcement that another former Supreme Court justice is going to lead an investigation into all of this yet again. Defense Minister Harjit Sejan acknowledging that uh, many victims just simply don't trust the system, but vowing that that will change. The actions of the past and what they have seen we regret that we did not have a system in place that supports them, but we are absolutely committed to doing this. And the work that you will see now is how we're going to build on those actions and regain that trust. If you're committed to doing it, then why not do it? We have this review. The recommendations are there. They have not been acted on in six years, but we're going to go through this whole exercise again, which I suppose, if nothing else, uh, gives the government a convenient answer to any questions about all of this between now and whenever we get a federal election. So, I, look, I think it's easy to feel frustrated and cynical about this announcement today when clearly there's some very real issues that, that need to be addressed here. Joining us for some reaction and some thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program, Stephanie Carvin, uh, assistant professor at the uh, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Professor Carvin, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me back on. 
Well, so let me get your impressions of um, what you heard from the minister today, or maybe to the point what, what you didn't hear from him today. Well, you know, when you said frustrated and cynical, that, that, it's so frustrating. And I'm so cynical of all of this. And frankly, I'm just tired. I'm really tired of of the way the Trudeau government has been handling this issue. Um, it's just, you know, as you said in the introduction, we have looked at this issue, not just in 2015, but, you know, there's been other reports done um, really going back to the 1980s. Uh, there has been Senate reports, uh, you know, I think even just two years ago looking into this issue. There have, you know, there was actually an ongoing investigation in Parliament at the National Defense Committee that the Liberal MPs shut down. Um, they decided they didn't want to look into this anymore and they shut it down. And, you know, so... You know, they could have kept that going uh, if mm-hmm. there was a need to investigate further. But no, they, they felt that this that this couldn't be done. So it, it clearly um, this just is very much a move. I don't even think it seems like a move. It is a move to try and, you know, say that they're doing something, that they're looking into it, that they're taking it seriously. It's not. It's not that at all. They are kicking this can down the road as far as they can. Hopefully, I, I think in their mind, passed a, a a next federal election and uh, with the hopes of again of just not having to act and um you know i i i have you know i have to be honest here i have a bit of a personal interest in this and in that you know two of my very good friends were in the military both of whom suffered sexual harassment um and you know they've just felt so you know when we're talking about these issues they just feel so angry and sad that nothing continues to be done and my heart just kind of goes out to everyone who's gone through this um to see a minister hide behind again uh another inquiry that is going to come up with almost certainly the exact same results in fact you know one of my friends said to me you know if if louise Ar- louise arbor should just you know take the last report which was from 2015 put her name on it you know scratch it out put her name on it and resubmit it to the department of defense because you know, the, the same problems are still there. I, I don't think this is going to achieve anything. No, we're going in a big giant circle, aren't we, where we're going to go through this whole exercise again. We're going to come back with many of the same findings, likely many of the same recognitions or recommendations, rather. We're going to be exactly where we are today, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the case. The, the major difference between 2015 and now is that there was the DND's response, General Vance, ironically, who, you know, one of the, the people who's been found to potentially have fathered children in secret uh, with one of the women he was sexually harassing, um, you know, he put in place Operation Honor, which was to basically put in place a plan so that, you know, people could report sexual harassment and not, and, you know, it would be taken seriously by the Canadian Armed Forces. Well, that was a giant failure. The military has actually ended Operation Honor because it was such a clear failure. And as a result, they, uh, you know, that that's the only real change I think that we've seen since since 2015. The main recommendation of I should say it's the Deschamps report. Um, the the main one of the main recommendations of that report, uh, recommendation three, was to create an independent reporting mechanism for the uh, for anyone who was sexually harassed. Uh, to come forward because the chain of command just simply can't handle it. I mean, and now we know why. Because it turns yep. out a lot of people in the chain of command were very much being accused of uh, a number of, of these uh, of sexual harassment. And so perhaps they didn't have the um, incentive to investigate these issues particularly hard. So 
Right. As a result of this, um, you know, there have been these calls for this independent reporting uh, mechanism. This has never been put in place. The calls for this to go in now, the, I was hoping that was what the minister was going to say today, that, yes, we're going to, you know, enact recommendation three of, of the 2015 report so that, you know, anyone who comes forward won't have to worry about career repercussions. It'll be held separately. Nope, we're doing the the most you know, useless thing. I actually, I mean, this is the thing, and I, I'm ranting here, and I'm sorry, but, you know, ranting on the radio just, just kind of feels good. Um, mm-hmm. But, like, I actually feel the minister made things worse today. Like, I actually think he took a bad situation and made it worse by not, you know, doing the right thing, which is to create this independent reporting mechanism for, you know, women and men who have been sexually harassed. Which they could do. I mean, he, he gave some weird answer today when, when he was asked about, well, why don't you do that? And... He's trying to suggest, well, we, we can't just we can't just create that. Well, why can't well, they? They very much can't. Well, yeah, can't like there, like the minister is hiding behind an ounce of truth. That's the way I would put it. So yeah, I mean, look, you can't just create an independent mechanism out of nowhere and say, okay, fix it. No, I mean that that mechanism needs to have support staff. They need to be able to make sure that you know the recommendations that come out of that mechanism are actually implemented with the Canadian Armed Forces. So there needs to be bureaucracy. There needs to be staffing. They need to figure out how that would actually work. Um, so yes, I mean they can't just create it. They have to actually make sure that you know those recommendations would be integrated, especially if it was an independent kind of thing. But. You know, he had six years. <laughs> right. Six years we've had this report. You know, like to say that, oh, well, we can't do that. I mean, it's crazy. It, it doesn't make any sense. And, you know, he could at least say, yes, we're going to do this. And here's the first steps that I've taken. We're not even getting that. So, I mean, yeah, it was a terrible answer. And it just shows a minister who is, you know, he just doesn't want to do the right thing. That's the only way I can put it. I mean, he just does not want to take these steps. And I don't know why. It's very, very strange. Look, that's the thing. I mean, you know, he, he didn't create these problems. He's not the one obviously engaged in any of this behavior, but he's the minister of national defense, right? He has right. responsibility here. This, this, you know, I mean, really, ultimately, the buck stops with him, doesn't it? Exactly. He has, like, I mean, one of the things he said is, well, I didn't want to know when I found this out about General Vance, which is kind of really how this controversy is blown up in the first place. Yeah. Like the fact that, you know, people in the government seem to have known that there were these allegations. But, you know, any attempt to actually understand what happened has been shut down by the liberal MPs who are supposed to be looking into this. Um, so basically what we know is that someone brought this to his attention. He says, I don't want to know because I don't want to compromise the investigation. It was sent off to the police, but then he never did anything about it. He never asked about it. You know, I don't, he, and I think he argued that this was some kind of ministerial independent, you know, interference in the, in the course of justice. No, it's your job. Your job is to actually make sure that the people underneath you are protected. And if you know that there's this kind of, large problem with harassment to just kind of, you know, say, oh, well, you know, I, I better not find out because, you know, and, and, and like, you know, and to never follow up, to never put anything in place. I mean, no, this is just pure negligence. The minister has not done his job, right? And and there's all these kinds of attempts to kind of point fingers at PMO. Well, sure, I'm sure they knew. But at the end of the day, it, this was the minister's fault. This is the minister's responsibility to fix, and he doesn't want to fix it. And frankly, I think he should resign. It, it's You know, we need someone in place who has the confidence, I think, of Canadians to actually fix and address the problem and not just try to blame all the people around him to say, well, I didn't want to know, to say, you know, oh, well, I'm going to have a 
you know, a, a Supreme Court, a retired Supreme Court judge look at this problem. That, that's not what a minister should do. Uh, the minister has to protect the people who work underneath him or her. Um, and, you know, and they've appointed now this poor woman who, you know, was a major general this morning, woke up, found out she suddenly a lieutenant general yeah. in charge of fixing the culture of the armed forces. I mean, yay, there's a poison chalice if I ever saw one. And yeah, it's, it's just a really unfortunate thing. Um, and again, it just that boggles my mind that the government seems to want to do everything but the right thing. And even if we want to be charitable, that at some point this review will come back with some recommendations, the government will eagerly act upon all of them. In the meantime, it's it's inertia. It's inaction. Nothing is happening on this front, is it? Exactly. And so basically every time now that, you know, opposition MPs say something that has a comments and say, oh, well, we've appointed a, you know, we're having a review, you know, we're, we're having someone look at it. And, and it seems odd because, like, it's a kind of way of laundering the responsibility to act. Right. Like you're dumping the responsibility to act on on this on this new report, which is not going to find anything different from the old report. And I hope, frankly, that the report says that that this was an unnecessary delay tactic on behalf of, of the minister. I mean, that's what should be said. Um, yeah. And I mean, I so this is the frustrating thing. Um is that, you know, I, I just don't understand what this is going to achieve. And again, if I'm someone who's been through all of this and, you know, if I was a victim of harassment and the answer I received, you know, having this controversy fester for the last couple of months that, oh, well, we'll look into it some more after having already shut down one investigation in the House of Commons. Um, it, it's just it just rings so hollow. It's, it's just really I mean, I sound like a bit of a broken record here, but I mean, it's just the kind of like the, the, the gall of it. It's it's not like I mean, I just want to be clear with your listeners here. This isn't just a women's issue. Right. Like right. This isn't just women that are, you know, like, oh, you know, women in the military, blah, blah. No, it's not just that. It's like when you have these cultures of harassment, it's not just women being harassed. Like, is there like, you know, these kinds of toxic cultures encourage racism. They encourage other forms of discrimination. Um, and it all kind of gets swept under the rug because there's never any accountability for any of it. And I think in the end, this doesn't just harm the people. It, it absolutely harms the people. And we should pay attention to that. But at the same time, I worry that it's hurting the institution itself. It's hurting, you know, delaying fixing this problem hurts the Canadian Armed Forces, hurts our military readiness, hurts, you know, recruitment, retention, all these different things. Like, this is a really bad thing for Canada. It's not just the women that are being harassed and, and feeling bad for them, although we should. This is actually a real problem. Like, our, our Canadian Armed Forces aren't, it doesn't seem to be functioning the way it should be. And all Canadians should be worried about that. Yeah, that's an excellent point. We'll leave it there for now. Professor Carvin, always appreciate it. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Thanks for letting me yell. I appreciate it, as always. Stephanie Carvin, Associate Professor of International Affairs at uh, the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. A great combination. Somebody who knows her stuff and doesn't pull any punches. But I think she makes some great points, especially that last point. What about the institution itself? How much is damage is being done by the minister's refusal to take any action, to take any accountability here? I mean, the whole thing's just a mess, and today didn't improve anything. Back in February, the Globe and Mail reported uh, on a situation in Beijing uh, that the Visa Application Center... Uh, the Canada has in Beijing, is actually being managed by Chinese police. It's a police-owned company 
that has actually been running this office all the way back to 2008, although the contract uh, was uh, uh, renewed in uh, subsequent years, including 2018. And yet the federal government says it only learned in February about this arrangement. So this was uh, an admission in some documents that were tabled in the House of Commons this week. It was NDP immigration critic Jenny Kwan uh, who raised these questions, which I suppose only beg further questions. But joining us to talk more about the situation is the aforementioned uh, Jenny Kwan, as mentioned, uh, NDP immigration critic, member of parliament. Uh, Ms. Kwan, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Okay, so first of all, I mean, were, were you surprised uh, by this this uh, admission here that the government only knew about this as recently as February? Well, it's absolutely shocking to me that the government did not even know that Canada's visa application office uh, operation in Beijing has been subcontracted out to uh, to to the ownership uh, by the Beijing police. Um, it, it, it's just unbelievable that the Canadian government didn't even know that. Now, of course, the company that subcontracted out this work uh, uh, is a group called VFS Global, and they were summoned to come to the Standing Committee on Immigration and Citizenship, and they told us on the public record that they had told the government that that work has been subcontracted out, uh, and, and, and that company is indeed owned by the Beijing police. And that work, of course, began back in 2008, where the government subcontracted out uh, the Canadian visa um, operation uh, uh, in China. And the government in office at that time uh, is actually your current uh, premier, uh, Jason Kenney. He was the minister of immigration yes. at that time. Right. So this is something that uh, obviously transcends both the current government and the former government. So, you know, responsibility, I suppose there's there's lots of that to go around here, isn't there? Well, yes, uh, both the conservative government and your current premier, uh, Jason Kenney, is responsible, uh, was responsible. And now, of course, the liberal government is responsible. So my first question, of course, is that how on earth did the former minister and now Premier Jason Kenney uh, say that he didn't know about this? Uh, mm -hmm. If he didn't know about it, it really just speaks to the level of incompetence uh, or disregard for the important work that's conducted by Canada's visa application centers uh, as well. And so, you know, I mean, I just find it absolutely astounding. To be frank with you, I went on Google, for example, and I was able to find minutes of the Chinese Communist Party meeting where they appointed their party secretary and deputy party secretary to take the positions of the chair and deputy chair of that company, respectively. If I was able to do that through a Google search, <laughs> surely the government's process of vetting would have uncovered that information as well. Now, I have to say, the conservatives were asleep at the switch and missed it back in 2008. And the liberals, after they took office with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, they also missed it in 2018. And it took the media, the Globe and Mail, to uh, bring this to their attention uh, and, and for them to finally realize that Canada's Visa Application Center in China is operated and run 
by the Beijing police. Let's talk about what the implications of that are. What does it mean for visa applicants? What does it mean for their information? I mean, do we know the the full extent of, of, uh, you know, the impact of this? Well, I think this raises all kinds of alarm bells, right? I mean, there is a direct, I think, uh, issue of conflict that we should, we as Canadians should all be concerned about. First off, uh, the the staff there, by the way, the Golden Mail also uncovered that 86% of the staff uh, at the subcontractor are hired by the Beijing police. 86% of that staff. So the head of that company, the chair and the deputy chair are Chinese Communist Party, um, Party Secretary and Deputy Secretary. They have to swear an oath of allegiance to the Chinese Communist Party. And it is their duty to execute the will of the party. And that is their first loyalties. That's where it lies. So how can we allow for this to continue? How, do we, how can we find this to be acceptable? If you were an individual who um, needs to um, make an application to get a visa to come to Canada, would you not be concerned that the operation there in in, in, in Canada is actually run by the Beijing police, given especially what's going on right now in China with the situ- situation with the genocide of the Uyghurs in China, with the um, mass arrests of the pro-democracy activists in Hong Kong. Wouldn't you be uh, concerned about that? And so, so I have to say that it's astounding to me that the Canadian government, that the Liberal government, is just sitting by and just saying, oh, well, you know, nothing to see here, nothing to worry about, uh, move along, move along. You know, the fact is, if the Chinese government gets wind of the fact that a, uh, uh, a pro-democracy activist or someone who's been critical of the government on the uh, genocide with the Uyghurs in China mm-hmm. is trying to get a visa to come to Canada, would you not think that they might be put in jeopardy? Would you not think that okay. there are risks associated for those individuals? Yeah. Now, so what, what is the current status, right, uh, of the, the ownership? We're not talking past tense, are we? This is still the status quo as of today, isn't it? This is uh, still continuing on, and that's why this is so astounding. Now that the Liberal government knows about this, uh, what are they going to do about it, right? I mean, it's astounding that they didn't know anything about it when they um, renewed the contract back in 2018. It's astounding that the uh, Harper government didn't know anything about it they, when they first awarded the contract uh, to, to, to this group. But now that the Liberal government knows about this, what are they going to do about it? That contract is up for renewal again. Are we going to continue to allow for this to uh, carry on? Or are we going to say, no, this cannot continue. We have to cancel the contract. We have to protect the integrity of the uh, Canadian visa application um, offices abroad. Uh, In in fact, in the United States, they actually um, brought those services in-house. They do not rely on um, staff from the communist uh, um, party in, chi- in China to run that operation. I think the Canadian government should bring this service back in-house to ensure that uh, the, the integrity of the office is absolutely protected and that we're not at risk of any, uh, any 
uh, that we do not put our operation at risk at all. Indeed. Yeah, that seems like an obvious move. We'll see if the government follows through. We'll leave it there for now. Jenny Kwan, thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate your input on this. Thanks for having me. All right. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Jenny Kwan, who is the uh, member of parliament for Vancouver East, is the NDP critic on the citizenship and immigration file. And well, I, I think these are all very relevant questions. I mean, what the hell is going on here? How did nobody notice this? And why aren't we doing anything about it right now? Uh, and yeah, I mean, she's right uh, that our current premier was indeed at one point the minister of immigration. Here's the statement he provided, uh, just just for the record here, and this is when the uh, Globe and Mail had first reported this story in February. The response that Jason Kenney provided at the time was, quote, there was a public tendering process. And as you know, there can be no political interference in tendering. If this happened during my tenure and I had been made aware of it, obviously I would have stopped it. So that's the response from uh, Mr. Kenney, that essentially he didn't know about it, if he did, he would have stopped it. Uh, same thing with Chris Alexander, another former conservative immigration minister. I was never informed of this arrangement. It should never have happened. No state body in any region should be controlling access to our immigration or any other programs. So, yes, as mentioned, the United States well ahead of us in the vaccine race. Now, things are improving in Canada. And we've been uh, moving up those international rankings, but uh, our southern cousins are well ahead of us. 100 million Americans fully vaccinated now as of today, uh, more than half with a uh, first dose. Now the problem for the Americans is how do you get the demand to meet the supply? It's a good problem to have, but that's the reality. Might work out well for Canadians. We've heard some stories in recent days, Manitoba truckers, now even Manitoba teachers, able to jump across the border into North Dakota, get a vaccine. Same with Saskatchewan truckers. Some lucky Albertans have had the opportunity to dip into Montana and get a vaccine courtesy of our friends with the Blackfeet Confederacy because they've got excess vaccines. So the Americans are still limited in what they can send us, but they are finding some ways in some cases to open up their doors. Are there ways for Canadians to find some other doors into the U.S. and their abundant vaccines? Well, apparently so. There's a lot of this going on, and uh, depending where you are, depending where you're going, how you're going, it's um, maybe easier said than done. But uh, where there's a will, there's a way, I suppose. Uh, Tristan Hopper is a really fascinating piece of the National Post, nationalpost.com, uh, looking at this phenomenon of uh, Canadians getting vaccinated south of the border. He joins us on the line here this afternoon. Tristan, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Hello. So in terms of, uh, you know, this, this rush to get vaccinated in the United yeah. States, are we able to, to quantify uh, to any reasonable degree to what extent this is happening? Oh, what their vaccination rate is? Well, in terms of, you know, the numbers of Canadians who are choosing this route. Oh, no, 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 no. Because everybody, yeah, I mean, it's happening. It's, uh, it's, it's somewhat widespread. But, uh, yeah, in terms of uh, actually knowing how many are, are doing it, no, there's no official stats. It's, it's sort of like, you know, numbers of drug users, um, yes. illicit drug users. We have an idea, but, you know, that Statistics Canada doesn't keep numbers on that. So anybody who's doing it... Um, is often keeping quiet about it for uh, any number of reasons. Well, and, and yeah, I mean, there's there's obviously um, 
you know, some stigma around international travel. There's obviously limitations around international travel. I don't know that the Americans are quite rolling out the vaccine red carpet either. I mean, do states have official positions on this? It varies from state to state. So if you look at, so my border state, which is Washington state, if you go on and say who's eligible for the uh, the vaccination, they're pretty clear about this is for Washingtonians. Please don't take the vaccine. If you, only if you live and work uh, in Washington, we understand you want to come in from maybe Idaho or, or Oregon or something, but you know, get it from your own state. So some states are quite clear about this. Uh, other states don't care. Um, or, I mean, they're, they're so... Um, they're so into getting uh, the vaccine uptake being as high as possible that there's zero residency requirements whatsoever. So Texas and Louisiana do that, and I think Arizona as well, um, where they're actively saying, uh, we are not going to check even if you live in the state. If, if you are present on Texas soil and you are over the age of 16, you can get this vaccine. So that's uh, all they're looking at. So um, that's why I was saying in the story, I think there's sort of a perception um, that uh, this, this is sort of illegal. You're breaking or bending the rules uh, to get a COVID vaccine by slipping over into the state. But actually, um, if you do everything right, uh, you can go into the United States and get a vaccination and come back without once breaking the rules um, or even fibbing about what you're doing. Um, so that is the case in Washington. So I could go to Washington tomorrow and most uh, pharmacies aren't actually going to check for ID or check if you live and work there. They just don't care. Um, but, I mean, I would be violating Washington state law because their website says, please don't take it if you're not a Washingtonian. So I could still get it, but you could argue it's unethical. But if I go to Texas or Louisiana, um, those states, I mean, you could argue it's a loophole. I mean, it, it wouldn't if they were introducing a policy where like, oh, we're going to just buy all these vaccines to vaccinate Canadians. I mean, that's something that never would have passed the state house. Uh, but in those cases, you're technically not violating any rules. What about Florida? Florida is a popular destination for Canadians. A lot of snowbirds live in Florida. This is maybe some added uh, incentive for snowbirds to head to Florida. But uh, it's been a bit of an issue there, hasn't it? Yeah, Florida has some residency requirements. And when they started, um, so they first started rolling it out to anybody over the age of 65. And there was no residency requirements. They just said, you know, anybody who shows up, if you got an ID that shows you're over the age of 65, you get it. But what happened is they started getting, the word got out, and it wasn't just snowbirds showing up. It was everyone. People were flying in from India. They were flying in from Europe. They were flying in from Central America. Um, anybody who could go to Florida was going there to get the vaccine because the word got out. This is one of the um, first places in the world. Now, it's, it's quite common. But this is one of the first places in the world that uh, was giving it out to absolutely anybody uh, over a certain age. So after a while, um, particularly it's March and most of the population isn't vaccinated, Florida said, hey, why are we vaccinating all these foreign nationals when we don't even have most of our own population vaccinated? So they did put in residency requirements, but they're still pretty lax. Um, so most snowbirds are still eligible. You just have to bring... Um, like, uh, you know, evidence, like a piece of mail you received at your address. So it's, it's a pretty low bar. It is. Now, there's the, the tricky part about getting to the United States. And we've got this weird situation where the easiest way to visit the United States seems to be to fly there on an airplane and return via vehicle. Yeah, and this makes absolutely no sense if you're actually looking at containing the virus. So uh, medical ethicists have sort of spoken out on this and they said well actually the safest way to travel to the u.s is in a private vehicle for obvious reasons um however 
if I show up at the border, non-essential travel is banned at uh, land borders. So if you show up and you say, I'm going to Disney World or I'm just going to go, you know, wink, wink, get my vaccine and then come back, you'll be turned away. But that's not going to happen at an airport. Um, few people know this, uh, but the, the like travel into the U.S. by air has never been restricted this whole pandemic. Um, it's essential, non-essential, whatever. You can fly into the States. I mean, um, now you have to present a negative COVID test. I think some states had uh, quarantine requirements uh, once you showed up. Mm-hmm. But you can fly anywhere you want in the States. Uh, you just have to bring a ne- negative uh, uh, COVID test uh, to the airport, So, um, which isn't great. Um, uh, obviously, uh, going there by road. Uh, I mean, if you're, if you're looking at just presenting the least number of harm to the least number of people. Ideally, if you went to the States, you would just get in your private car and drive to a border community. Um, flying to Texas, obviously, is, you know, if, if you were a secret carrier of COVID, that's going to open up more people to risk than if you're in your private car. But, uh, yeah, uh, legally, you can fly anywhere in the state. It is bizarre. But uh, there are some border communities who would uh, very much like Canadians to be driving across. And, you know, some have, as you pointed out in your piece, started to take pity uh, on us. I even read uh, this week uh, Point Roberts, which is a very odd quirk of uh, of mapping mm-hmm. and, and border drawing, is desperate to share their vaccines with Canadians. Uh, North That's Dakota, right. Alaska, we got some other examples where the Americans are saying Canadians, come, please, we've got vaccines for you. Yeah, there, some of these communities are at like 98% vaccination. So, like, they're, and this is, this is both vaccines. This isn't like Canada where you get the one shot. And anyway, four months, and then eventually we'll get around to the second job. This is people. Ninety-eight percent of the community is fully vaccinated. Uh, like they're, they're fine. Um, like the pandemic is over for them, and they're saying, hey, you know, it'd be great to. Particularly, a lot of these border communities are dependent on Canadians. And Point Roberts is the best example. Uh, that's this weird little spit of land uh, that's attached to the bottom of Metro Vancouver. It's not attached to any parts of the mainland United States. So. I, I love going to Point Roberts because it's basically just this American Disneyland for Canadians. You just drive over <laughs> yes. and there's like a million gas stations in this small community because everybody's just filling up in gas. There's cheap cheese. There's cheap booze. And that's it. Like the, the entire community is just servicing Canadians who want uh, an afternoon in the U.S. So uh, with Canadians gone, I mean, they've been just ravaged. Um, very little income coming in. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's hard because you've got all of Metro Vancouver there. So if you start sharing vaccines, you've got three million people showing up looking for vaccine. But what you've seen, uh, a better example would be Alaska, um, where Stewart, B.C., um, the Yukon is actually at high rates of vaccination using domestic Canadian vaccines. uh, But in Stewart, um, Stewart, B.C. is very low. So you're having the governor of Alaska saying, we've got all these extra vaccinations and we're kind of good. Um, how about we vaccinate the entire population of Stewart, B.C., up in D.C. North, and then maybe Canada can be a bit more lax uh, with the border, which would help our economy, would help the other economy, and, you know, just establish some long-term friendships. So you are seeing these very touching incidents all across the border um, where communities that have much of this vaccine are looking to share it uh, with their Canadian friends. And there's economic reasons for this. You want Canadian money to keep flowing in, and some of it's just friendship. Uh, people have relatives, yeah. they have friends on the other side, and they want to see them protected. Very interesting. Hopefully this is all the moot points soon enough. But in the meantime, uh, more at nationalpost.com. Tristan Opper, always great chatting. Thanks for joining us here today. Thank you. All the best. Tristan Hopper, he is a columnist for the National Post, uh, a delightful one at that, uh, nationalpost.com. Uh, so his piece on the, um, well, is it Q jumping? I had a text uh, on, on that point. 
you know, you're not jumping the line here. You're not necessarily jumping the line there either. So it's, that's a gray area, I guess, on that point. But as Tristan Hopper says, depending on where you're going and how you're going, you're not necessarily breaking any rules. So, I mean, be careful with it. Some states are kind of drawing a line that these vaccines are for residents of this state. Other states don't seem to care too much. We've got vaccines and whoever shows up and says, give me one, then here you go. So very interesting. But yes, it's true that unless there's some special circumstances, like with this uh, vaccine clinic, I think there's been a couple of them right on the Montana, (laughs) that's what I'm trying to say, right on the Montana border, where they had this drive-through vaccine clinic organized by the Blackfeet Confederacy in Montana for Canadians. But otherwise, if you show up at a border crossing, Homeland Security is most likely going to turn you away. Unless you're considered essential travel. So if you say, hey, no, we're just going to do some shopping, we're going to go hang out in the U.S., we're going to go find a vaccine, hopefully, they're going to turn you away. But if you get on an airplane, nobody's even going to ask you the question. The only thing you'll be asked is, do you have a negative COVID test? Do you have your passport? Do you have your tickets? Are you carrying any uh, illegal items? And, and that's pretty much it. So, yes, the border's closed, but, of course, any Canadian who shows up at a land border crossing is going to be allowed back in. The Canadians can't turn you away. The Americans can. But if you're a Canadian returning to Canada to land border crossing, uh, the government has to let you in. Now, there's still rules that in terms of, you know, you still need to present a negative COVID test when you show up at the border. You still need to go straight home and quarantine. But we created this weird situation where it's easy to fly abroad, whether it's U.S. or anywhere else. And we've created this incentive for people to fly back to the United States, rent a car, hire a cab, whatever, and drive to the border. Because the mandatory hotel quarantine is only for returning air travelers. And even then, in some instances, we hear anecdotally people are just walking out of the airport. Right? Send me the ticket, send me the fine, whatever, I'll pay it. Or maybe you'll just forget about me, but I'm out of here. And nobody's there to stop them. So it's, it's a bit of a mess. Anyway, the vaccine question's an interesting one. So it's hard to know how many Canadians have done this, are doing it, or thinking of doing it. As I say, it's hopefully going to be a moot point soon enough once we get sufficient numbers here. But uh, does that become an issue at some point? Others, how easy is it to get to Canada? How easy is it to walk into a pharmacy in Canada and say, I'm here for a vaccine? I don't think we're at that point yet, but something they're dealing with in the U.S. Welcome back. Rob Brigginridge with you here on this Friday afternoon. Um, When it comes to notorious prisons, there are a lot that come to mind. I mean, Alcatraz might be the most famous, but uh, Canada certainly has one of its own. uh, The Kingston Penitentiary which remains a historic site. I mean, you, you could tour the, the Kingston Pan. I don't know if COVID has affected that or not, but it, uh, it certainly is, <laughs> it, it's a source of fascination and it definitely holds a lot of history and frankly, a lot of ugly history within those walls. When I say notorious, I, I think the word applies here. One of the reasons for that notoriety some of the riots that occurred there, and uh, most notably the uh, riot that occurred 50 years ago this month, 
lasted for four days, left two inmates dead, essentially the prison in tatters. So marking 50 years from that uh, event, and it was certainly a pivotal event in the history of that prison, and in, I think in general, the prison system in Canada. As we mark the 50th anniversary of this event, there's a new book telling the story of what happened over those four days and uh, what happened after. It's called Murder on the Inside, the true story of the deadly riot at Kingston Penitentiary. Joining us on the line is the author of this book, Catherine Fogarty, on the line with us here this afternoon. Catherine, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Yeah, and I mean, we, we like these round numbers, and 50 years is a good time to, to reflect on what happened, uh, because mm-hmm. it, was, it was pretty wild and significant. But what, what got you interested in telling this story? Well, I actually discovered the story back in 2016, uh, a little notice in the, in the Globe and Mail, sort of this, this day in history. And um, I was just immediately drawn to the story for the fact that I'd never heard about it. Um, because as you said in your introduction, I and mean, we all know about the notorious Kingston Penitentiary, but I mean, this was one of the worst uh, prison riots in Canadian history. It was uh, in and around the very same time as the Attica riot, 1971, uh, within a few months of that riot. So I thought, why? Well, how come, you know, we all know about Attica. Um, why have I never heard about this one? So I cut out this little piece of paper from the, the newspaper and... Uh, and that was that was it. It's interesting because I think riot, act, you know, aptly describes what happened. But I, this is often referred to as an uprising. That there were a lot of tensions, a lot of circumstances that that led to this. And in fact, you know, there's a figure, and you talk a lot about him in the book, that's sort of been singled out or blamed as as one of the instigators of this. Brian Knight who was an inmate at, at the prison at the time. So what what do people need to know about the circumstances that led up to this and why it happened? Well, you know, again, the the conditions at Kingston Penitentiary were uh, were uh, almost unlivable at the time. I mean, yes, we're talking about a prison that was built in 1833, with the first prisoners uh, going in two years later. So uh, an incredibly archaic, old prison with, um, you know, the, as I said, the conditions were deplorable. The other thing that was happening at the time, of course, was the issue related to, to civil rights and, and human rights. And, you know, the, there was a lot of, um, most of the prisoners at that time were, were young men. I mean, we're talking 17, 18, very young men. And, mm-hmm. you know, they kind of got to the point, you know, they were hearing about what was going on south of the border with respect to civil rights. And they said, you know what, we're not, you know, we're, we're not going to sit back and, and, and be treated this way anymore. And, and, and as Billy Knight said, you know, you've taken, you've, you've taken our civil rights by locking us up, and, and, and of course, that's, that was what they were due. But, you know, we still want our human rights. We still want to be, want to be treated like humans. Um, so that was, that was sort of what was bubbling up at the time. But then also, they were planning to close the prison in 1971 because it was uh, su- such an archaic institution. Um, and they were transferring people to what was called the, the new super-maximum prison, which was Millhaven. And this was a new type of prison, and this terrified the inmates. They had no idea what this meant because they were hearing all sorts of rumors about, you know, 24-hour surveillance and, um, you know, being um, having um, 
uh, gas, you know, that could go into their their cells um, at any point if if there was any kind of uprising. So this this made them very very nervous, and that was kind of the spark that uh, that lit the flame that that particular day. Yeah, it took a spark. It's interesting, and and you know, you, you're talking about uh, one of the guards who yells, "Tuck that shirt in." And I think it was even Knight who, who said something about that's the last bleeping order you're going to give. And it just, it, it like it got set off in that moment, right? I mean, so it, yeah. how, how planned was it or how spontaneous was it more to the point? Well, he was definitely planning something. I mean, he had he'd, uh, uh, recruited uh, six other men. So he had a plan, but it wasn't what transpired. I mean, as, uh, as you know, was revealed in the book, it, it, unfortunately or fortunately, uh, it just happened in the moment because a guard uh, pulled him over as they were coming back from the gym and said, yeah, tuck that shirt in. That was one of the rules that inmates had to have their shirts tucked in at all the, all the time. So Billy Knight just at that very moment just went, okay, you know, this is it, and, and punched the guard in, in the stomach. Uh, and again, you're talking about you've got 78 men, inmates, going through a very narrow corridor. Uh, so um, once they had that one guard um, uh, on the floor, they were able to uh, to get the other guards and, and the keys. And within two hours, over 500 inmates were uh, were free and roaming the prison. Uh, I think there were six guards in total then who were taken hostage at some point? Yes, there were six guards, and um, unfortunately, uh, most of them are no longer with us. Uh, but there is there is one. Um, the, he was a young man at the time. He was only 25 himself. His name is Carrie Bichelle. Uh So I've spent a, a lot of time with with Carrie and, and, and met him and his family, and um, you know talked about what uh, what transpired over those four days for him, which uh, you know again is still a very uh, very painful memory. Well, yeah, it would be. I'm sure would have been terrifying. All six did survive. But yes. what did they have to endure over those four days? Well, what they, you know, again, Billy Knight and his group, um, they, 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 they did not. They did not want a violent uprising. They wanted, you know, as they said, they want. They wanted the world to come in to see how they were being treated. So they had no intentions of uh, seeing anyone hurt, particularly the guards, because they knew if anything happened to those guards, then it was going to be, you know, an all-out invasion by the military that had surrounded the prison. So what they did is they created their own police force within the prison. Another group of inmates, very. Uh, large inmates that nobody was going to mess with, and they protected the guards. They hid them in the prison. They put them in prisoners' clothes, so they blended in, uh, and they protected them for for the the, um, the length of the riot. And when food was allowed in, I mean, they you know they were they were fed first. They were they were actually treated very well. But of course, it was still still terrifying for them. Indeed, and in the meantime, uh, you know, the the place was essentially ripped apart. So was it a decision then by the, the authorities to just sort of wait back, to, to wait this out or to be cautious? Were they essentially letting all of this play out then over those few days? They were letting it play out uh, on some level. They, uh, I mean, and that was part of the problem. There was, there was sort of two different types of uh, communication happening because they had brought in a citizens committee of, of lawyers uh, from Toronto. And uh, those men were in the prison 
negotiating with the prisoners committee for over the four days uh, for hours upon hours because again they wanted a peaceful resolution to to the end of the riot without anybody getting harmed or hurt so they were uh, involved in those negotiations but unfortunately uh, the communication that was happening within the prison and between those two committees a different type of communication was happening on the outside with respect to the government and what their plans were. So um, the Solicitor General at the time decided that, you know, the Monday morning, um, regardless of what was going on, the, the military were going to attack. Uh, so it came, down to, it came down to the wire and uh, it came very, very close to, to an Attica-type situation um, that happened five months later in, in upstate New York. So, um, so there were uh, very intense negotiations, but as I said, unfortunately, the, uh, the uh, government was, was not uh, on the same page. So the two deaths that occurred, there were two inmates that died. So was this during the, the four days of mayhem, or was this a part of the end, as it were? This was at the end, and again, very unfortunate, uh, because what happened was, as, mu- as, as, as this communication is happening in the prison, and the, the prisoners' committee is going back to the 500 prisoners and saying, you know, we're going to get a deal, we're going to get out of here, everybody's going to be safe, there will not be any retaliation. This is what they're hearing. But then they also heard the Solicitor General on the radio say, we, won't, we will not negotiate with these prisoners. So when they heard that, all hell broke loose, and a rogue group of very violent inmates um, decided that they had nothing to lose, that they figured everybody was going to be dead uh, by the morning. And so they decided that they were going to attack the weakest prisoners in in the prison, which were a group of uh, men, what they called the undesirables, which were um, sex offenders and and other men that had been in a a protective uh, custody unit. So they pulled them out of that unit and dragged them uh, underneath the dome. And, uh, you know, the rest is is very, uh, very violent. and, And yes, and two men ended up. Uh, of dying. A so very the aftermath of all of this, well, yeah, indeed. Yeah. Was it, and, and maybe, the, you know, some of the decisions were already made about the future of this prison, but was this essentially the beginning of the end for, for the Kingston Pen? Well, strangely, it wasn't. Um, as I said, that they were intending to close it in 1971. They did not close it until 2013. So, uh, so it continued um, for many years uh, as as a federal uh, penitentiary and as a reception area uh, for the rest of the country, where inmates would come and they would be um, evaluated and then designated as to where they would be going, whether medium or maximum security. Um, so, so it continued, and as you mentioned in your introduction, now they uh, there are tours that you can take, and I and I would strongly recommend uh, anyone taking one of those tours. If, if they're in the area, because it's uh, it's a fascinating um, look inside our our oldest penitentiary in the country. What you, what impact did it have then on you know the prison system and and you know did did anything change with regard to some of these issues that that maybe those involved were trying to raise uh, in terms of how we we approach these these situations? Did it, did it have any impact one way or the other? Well. You know what? I, I, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but I don't, I don't really think so. And that's why, you know, looking at this 50 years ago, I think is, is such a, a, a pivotal um, time to, to 
look back and 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 review what has happened um you know there were there were some things that happened at the time there was a a commission that was um was held an inquiry and and they had all sorts of recommendations um but this has happened over the years and with you know with governments as if it's come and gone and and some governments will you know uh implement some some penal reform and then another government's going to come comes along uh and um and, and takes those away so so it's been been like that for many years and you know two days ago on the front of the uh, globe and mail was um was a story about uh edward Ed, edward snowshoe whose uh, family is suing um the corrections uh, services of Canada because this poor poor young man died in in solitary confinement. So so we still have very very serious issues at play in our prison system, which is a very closed, uh, it, you know, system. Nobody can get in to actually see what's going on in there. There's no external oversight, and that's that was happening 50 years ago, and that's happening still today. Quite fascinating. Uh, as mentioned, the book is called Murder on the Inside, the true story of the deadly riot at Kingston Penitentiary. Catherine Fogarty, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.